Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. I want to show you a picture. Uh, Technically, this is a still from a video, but it's a pretty remarkable uh, picture. It's a pretty remarkable image considering the circumstances behind it. Now, some of you probably know right off the bat what this is. I I didn't really tune into this story when it was happening. This has been about five years ago, and I've sort of caught up later, but most of you have heard the basic story. Uh, In 2018, there was a local uh, Thai youth soccer team that had decided to do a little cave exploring uh, after one of their practices, and so they and their assistant coach went to this cave Monsoon season had just basically started. So as they entered the cave, uh, water level started to rise and it sort of forced them deeper into the cave and deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, the parents, of course, discovered that they weren't around and they figured, oh, somebody heard that they were going to this cave to explore and they found their bikes. Anyway, it turned into this huge international happening where where people were daily following the news of of what was going on. It was this huge global story. They got Navy SEALs. They got divers from all over the world, uh, cave divers, because it's a special kind of diving. You can't just, you can't just, you know, hold your breath and swim under the water. It's very, very uh, technical stuff. Thousands of people are trying to figure out how do we rescue these kids ranging from like 11 to 16 that are stuck deep inside this cave in these, in these terrible conditions. Now, from the perspective of the boys... They had been nine days almost in complete darkness. Well, in complete darkness. Nine days. And, and the few snacks that their, their assistant coach had were gone immediately. I mean, they didn't know how long they were going to be in there. Almost gone immediately. They're drinking rainwater that's seeping in from the ceiling. They have no idea what day it is. They have no clue if anyone's coming. And then, two British cave divers, specially trained for, for situations like this, they're searching and searching and searching. They go way deeper into the cave than anybody thought that these kids could possibly be. And they emerge from the water and they see these 13 boys. I can't imagine what that experience was like for the boys. Can you imagine sitting there in complete darkness? You have no idea what's happening. You have no idea if anybody knows that you're gone. You're worried about your parents. You're worried about getting in trouble. And then up from the darkness emerges these two guys with these headlamps and face stuff. And they're just, what what would that experience have been like? What was that feeling? I have to imagine that this smile on this young man's face is one of tremendous relief. Now, what he probably didn't know yet, and and sort of probably didn't matter, is that they weren't able to extract extract them from the cave for for like another eight or nine days because they had to figure out how are they going to get all these kids safely through this, this process that required six hours of of diving, cave diving, to get there. How are they going to get these kids back out? But you can see the smile, the sense of relief. I just cannot imagine what that was like. The specifics of their circumstances hadn't really changed, but everything is different. Now, now there's a bunch of cool details that I was like, ah, it'd be fun to share with everybody that aren't really important to the point that I want to make. Uh, But one of the things that I did want to share, I thought this was kind of funny, is they sent notes back with the divers telling their parents they were really sorry uh, and they were worried they were going to get in trouble 
by their parents, you know, for being gone a week. And their parents had to send notes with the divers back to them saying, you're not going to get grounded, I promise. It'll be okay. And then when they were trying to figure out who is going to go out first, so like which children are going to get rescued first, they decided, and this seems odd until you understand what they were thinking, they decided that the ones who lived furthest away from the cave would go first. So when you have the cave entrance, and the people whose houses was furthest, were furthest away would be the ones that leave first, because they thought after 17 days, they were going to get extracted, and then they were going to have to ride their bicycles home. And they figured, we better let the people who live furthest away go first. You just imagine what a wild situation, or what a wild feeling all that would have been. Anyway, I want you to hold this image, this, this sense of relief that, that you've been captured, you are not captured, but you've been, been, been uh, uh, conditioned to just live in the darkness, and then you see this light emerging from the water. Hold that image in your mind, if you would. We're, we're in a series called There is a Light. There is a Light. And we're exploring the first part of the Gospel of John. We told you that John is doing something pretty different than the other Gospels. Some of the Gospels tell the story of Jesus' birth, and Jesus is a little baby, and the traveling, and Mary, and the donkey, and all that. John doesn't do any of that. It's, it's a philosophical nativity. And John seems to be describing what it was like to be, a, what's the experience of being around Jesus? And to answer that question, John reaches for a metaphor. John says in John 1, 4, and 5, in him was life. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What it seems that John is saying is that the experience of being around Jesus was realizing that your life had been lived in the dark. And there, from below the surface of the water, emerges light. And you realize, oh, everything is going to be different now. Everything's different now. Maybe the specifics of the circumstance haven't changed, but everything's different. Now, I'm guessing that there have been times in your life that you were there, where you recognized my life is not what I want it to be. You felt desperate. You felt confused. You felt at the end of your rope. You needed a win. You just wanted something to be different or something to change. And, the, and then maybe something gave you hope. Something felt like light. Maybe it was an act of kindness from a friend, or maybe it was an answer to prayer, or maybe just someone comes alongside you and says, I see you, I get it, I understand, and you just don't feel so alone in the world. And, and those moments feel like light. So what I want to talk about, this is the third sermon in this series, and I want to talk about the idea of what does it mean for us to be a light for someone else? For us to be the British cave diver emerging from the water, providing light for someone else. What does that look like? For someone who feels stuck, for someone who feels hopeless and helpless, what does it look like for us to be that light? Genuinely, truly, to actually be helpful, to actually be good for them. You know, you likely know people who need light. How do we point others to the light? How do we do that? Now, some, there's a, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself, so I'll have to be careful. John chapter 1, verse 6. This is, we've been reading the same text all uh, series. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is a little confusing because the gospel is called John, and then there's this other guy, John. The gospel was written by John the apostle. The other guy was John the Baptist, and they didn't have, you know, John. One in every 20 Hebrew males was named John, so it was a pretty common name at the time. So there's a lot of Johns running around. These are different Johns. And so John the apostle is saying there was John the Baptist who was sent from God, uh, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So he's like, guys, I promise you, there's a light over here. You just have to trust me so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John is doing this thing. It's like a teaser for the 10 o'clock news. Like, stay tuned. There's important information coming, right? He's the opening act, so to speak, for Jesus. He's saying, hey, hang out. Uh, let's warm up the crowd because there's someone important about to show up. Jump down to John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John, John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he's like, aha, there is the light. He uses the language, the Lamb of God, which is a reference back to Exodus. Lots of layers in the Bible to spend time unwinding. But he's saying, hey, there is the light. There is someone greater here. Verse 37, when the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked them, uh, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, that's a Hebrew word for teacher, where are you staying? And if you're thinking, well, that's a weird question to ask somebody that you just met, you're right. It is a weird question to ask somebody you just met. You shouldn't ask that. Generally speaking, if you just met someone, that's only like serial killers ask questions like that. Where? But, it, but it is to us. To them, it meant they recognized Jesus as someone special. Jesus was someone worth checking out. And you couldn't just stalk them on Facebook and find out, hmm, what do they do? You couldn't look them up, look them up on LinkedIn and find out what their career was. You couldn't like go on their Instagram feed and figure out, oh, what do they got going on in their life? You actually have to hang out with a person. So you want to know where they live. This is first century Judaism. By the way, if you recognize somebody as a rabbi and you say, I want to follow that rabbi, then you literally follow them everywhere. You do everything with them. You would apprentice with them by living with them. Jesus recognizes that. Verse 39, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. We found the light that is the Christ. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, these two disciples realize that this guy is the one. And so the first thing that they do is they go find other people that they know are looking for light or who need light, and they say, we found him. Now, wouldn't it be helpful, right, I don't know if you've ever had arguments with skeptics or non-believing friends, but wouldn't it be so great if you had someone who's like, I just don't believe in Jesus. I just don't know. I'm not, I don't believe in God. Wouldn't it be great to be like, okay, come here, come on. Let's, can I introduce you to Jesus? And Jesus can tell you all about it. That would be great. But we can't do that. That's what Andrew did, but we can't do that. I can't like say, okay, just go talk to Jesus, please. He's got all the answers. I'm, I'm trying my best here, but it's not making sense. I can tell. Will you please go talk to Jesus? What does it mean for us? Where Jesus is someone who lived, who existed 2,000 years ago, for us to point people to Jesus. What does it mean for us to do that? When we meet someone whose life needs light, 
How do we point them toward the light? Because we still believe that. I'm assuming. I'm I'm just asking, I guess, on behalf of everybody. We still believe that, but we can't physically point people to Jesus. So how do we point people to the light? How do we point people to the light? I saw this a while back. I'm going to share a picture that I took in a public restroom. Now, this is hanging on the uh, toilet paper dispenser, and it's a what's called a gospel or religious tract. Uh, if you've grown up around the church, you've heard of these. And what these are, they're little pamphlets that are supposed to convince somebody that, you know, they're a sinner in need of God. Uh, and this one was in a bathroom. And it, I, I, it, I think, I believe it had been left there deliberately. And I think the person was thinking, hey, you know what people do in the bathroom? They like to read. And I'll just put in some reading literature and they'll read about Jesus and they'll be converted. That's what I think was happening. So I was looking this up. I, this, this is the weird things you Google. I was looking up the phrase, gospel tracks in public restrooms. <laughs> and turns out it's a whole phenomenon. There, there, there's all, there's thousands of pictures of people saying, hey, I found this in a public restroom because there's someone or many someones going around saying, I know what I need to do to be a light. I will leave literature in public restrooms. I'm sure. I'm sure it's a good thing. There's nothing inherently wrong about that. And listen, if your story is, my life was a mess, I felt hopeless, distant from God, and then I used a public restroom. If that's your story, wonderful. That's awesome. I would love to hear it. I don't know how many people that that's happened to, but maybe. But that's one way people feel like, well, this is how I point people to the light. I'll just leave a little something in the bathroom. Uh, Early this summer, I got to go to New York City with uh, with my daughter, and Times Square is packed all hours of the day and night. All the time, there's people there. And these people need Jesus. And so this crowd attracts a street kind of a street preacher. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of evangelizing. And this is one of the guys uh, that was preaching. And you can tell he's got a few people that are kind of listening. They're on vacation and they went to Times Square. You know, it's exciting, right? So it's kind of a John the Baptist approach, right? He's a voice in the wilderness talking, calling for repentance. The problem is, is I don't know how effective this is. Again, maybe your story is, I was on vacation in New York City, went to Times Square at 2 a.m. I got my picture taken with one of the costume Minnie Mouse characters, and then I saw the street preacher, and now I'm at church. Maybe that's your story, and if that is, that's wonderful. I'm just saying, I agree, likely agree with the message that the tracks in the bathroom and the street preacher are, are, are giving, but I'm not sure that they're very effective. But this is sometimes what we do, Christians do. Maybe not these specific things, but we're like, mm, I don't know, maybe if we can just kind of nudge people in the right direction, it'll, it'll do it. How do we effectively point people to the light? How do we effectively point people to the light? In Jesus' most well-known sermon, he pulls a, a reverse Uno card on us. And he says in Matthew 5, 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And we're like, hang on, I was trying to get out of the responsibility here. I was trying to figure out a way that someone else would bear the burden of doing this. And now you're saying you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. You've got the light in you. You're shining. Neither do people put a lamp and put it under a, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
This is one of those passages of scripture we read, we think we know what it means, and we move on, and we have no clue. Uh, I think when we read this, it is, well, it makes sense, right? Shine means let people see your good deeds. Seems fair to say. To shine means to let people see your good deeds. And uh, sure, okay, help elderly people across the street, sort my recyclables, bring homemade Christmas cookies to the neighbors. That's doing good deeds. That's shining. And if I do that enough, people will see that and then they'll glorify God and they'll come find the light. That's kind of how we tend to read that. Just a few verses later in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Hold on a second. I'm confused, Jesus. To shine means to let other people see your good deeds, but warning, don't let other people see your good deeds. Jesus, which is it? Which do you want us to do? Liam and I were discussing what makes good art. Uh, And it's surprisingly complex to define. Uh, For example, which of these two paintings uh, should be hanging in a museum or is hanging in a museum and which is hanging on a parent's fridge? Any guesses? Which of these two paintings, which is in a museum and which is on the fridge? One on the right is in the museum, the left is in the fridge. Is that? You think it's the opposite? Trick question. They're both in museums. And you have to pay money to see them in person. Your five-year-old in their kindergarten class could not have produced these. These are the result of decades of dedication and the pursuit of experience. And this is what it produces. Now, they literally are both in museums. I thought that was kind of funny. I thought I would trick you with that. What is good art? What is good art? When we call something good art, we're not calling it morally good. We're saying it's beautiful in some way or moving or there's something about it that compels me or inspires me or helps me understand the world in a, in a different way. That's what we use the word good when we're talking about good art. We're not talking about morally good, right? I hope, generally. I guess there's could be immoral art. When I read good deeds, I subconsciously interpret that phrase as moral things. Don't exceed the speed limit. Hold the door open for the people behind you. Don't take office supplies from work for personal use. And I'm thinking when I read that, oh, people are going to say, oh, look at Patrick. He's so ethical. He puts his shopping cart back in the corral. Wow. Tell me about Jesus. That's how I read that. And so we tend to read the verse in Matthew chapter 5 in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your spotless ethical record and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's two problems with that. The first problem is it it, it puts us in danger of placing a higher value on making people think we're good, whether or not we're really good, right? And no Christians ever struggle with that, right? In fact, I think sometimes Christians wrestle with wanting to post all their good deeds online so that people will know and affirm their good deeds. And of course, that violates what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. But the other problem is, is the biblical word good isn't morally good. When he says, let people see your good deeds, he's not talking about morally good deeds. That sounds a little odd. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is kind of fun. Of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, all right? 
It's translated in English, written in Greek. Uh, and there's also a version of the Old Testament that was translated into Greek because at one point, everybody in the world basically spoke Greek or everybody in the known world spoke Greek. So it, there is really good evidence that the Bible, Jesus, and the New Testament authors read and used and quoted was this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. So I want you to check this out. The Bible rarely, ever, does any sort of uh, typical creative writing stuff. There's no like eighth grade creative writing language. There's no setting of the story. There's no description. There's no stories that start out. There's no books of the Bible that start out. It was a dark and stormy night. The Bible never tells us what people look like. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. There's no physical description of him. We don't know if Peter was tall or short. We don't know if Moses was, was skinny or stout. We don't have any of that, right? There's no, no information except when it's particularly relevant to the story. Genesis chapter 39, verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. That's very nice. It's very nice of the Bible to say. We know Joseph was a good-looking guy by whatever ancient... Hebrew or ancient, uh, in this case, I guess it would be Egyptian standard. Uh, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, and then verse 7, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. Uh-oh, dun-dun-dun. Now you can see the plot developing, right? You, many of you know where the story goes. Here is a surprising trivia fact to impress your friends with. Good, as in good deeds, in Matthew chapter 5, is the same exact word as handsome or good-looking in Genesis 39. Same exact word. It's the same phrase. So Jesus is saying, let your handsome deeds, let your good-looking deeds shine. Let the beautiful deeds shine. There's another example of this in John 10, 2, where he talks about the choice wine. Same word. The choice wine is the good wine. It's the tasty wine. It's the fine wine. And so what Matthew 5.16 seems to be saying, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your handsome or your choice or your fine deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is Patrick's version. Sometimes in ministry, you end up in weird situations. Um, years ago in Iowa, and, and as I was working on this sermon this week, I realized, man, I sure tell a lot of stories about the goofy things that happened when I lived in Iowa, working at the church there. And then it just made me realize I can't tell about the goofy things that happen here because some of you are in the room. So I've got to save that for when I'm preaching other places. But when I was in Iowa, uh, here's one goofy thing that happened that I think is relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, a member of the church wanted me to meet their non-church friend. You know, he wanted me to shine the light on this non-church friend. Uh, and I was like, I don't I don't know if I'm going to do a good job with that, you know, if I don't say the right thing. It's a lot of pressure to put on a guy, you know what I mean? But he said, no, 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 it'll be great. He'll meet you. It'll be awesome. I said, okay, I guess. You know, I didn't know that I could say no at the time. I just thought I had to say yes to every crazy request somebody asked. And so I said, sure. And, and, and it doesn't seem like a crazy request until you hear. He said, great. Uh, how about you stop by his house tomorrow at 10? I'll be at work, but just stop, introduce yourself. And I'm like, wait, you're not even going to be there? And he's like, no, 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 I can't be there, but you go meet him. And, and so now you're saying, I got to go up to a stranger's house. I got to knock on the door. The stranger opens the door, and I'm like, hi, I'm a random stranger, but we both know the same person, and I guess we're supposed to get along, and I'm supposed to convert you. What that, does that sound okay? 
so crazy random. Again, I didn't know I could say no, thank you, <laughs> to weird things. So I go to the house the next day. I introduce myself. I'm like, hey, I guess we're supposed to meet. I don't know. I make small talk for a little bit. And I try to get out of there pretty quickly because I don't know what to say. I don't know where to start with this guy. There's a lot of pressure in this conversation. And he says, uh, this, this guy says, oh, hey, before you go, do you, do you, would you mind giving me a ride to the grocery store? Like, it's kind of weird, right? But I'm already, you know, it's like when you're in a situation, you're already stepped into part of the weirdness. And he's like, well, I'm sure I hesitated. And I'm like, sure, I'll give you a ride to the grocery store. And he's got his... Uh, he gets his stuff, and we get in the car. Small town, Iowa, grocery store's like five minutes away. So it's not really that much of a burden, but whatever. So I pull up to, to a spot, and I'm like, uh, all right, here you go. And uh, he starts to get out of the car, and he's like, hey, could you come inside and help me shop? Now, it's not like he needed help shopping, I didn't think. I don't know. I wasn't trying to assess the situation. But he seemed like a perfectly capable person. So, Okay, yeah, I... I I can help you shop. Yeah, sure. I was thinking I was just going to drop them off and go home or go back to the church building. So we go outside. I'm pushing the cart now, and he's throwing stuff in the cart. So, all right, we get up to the front. He doesn't have enough money to pay the bill. And I'm standing there thinking, well, I guess you're just going to have to put some stuff back. And he's like, hey, could you cover some of this for me? Uh, yes, I guess. Sure. And so I, we, I pay, we load it back up in the car, I bring him back to the house, and I'm like, well, have a great day. And he's, <laughs> he's like, will you come inside and put these groceries away for me? I'm genuinely shocked I did not cook him dinner. Because every step of the way, I was like, I have met my obligation here, and there's just more. There's always more. There's always more. Now, what's, the, what's strange, right, is that technically, at each point, I did the right thing, right? If you're thinking about morally, I did the right thing. Is that fair to say? Morally. And I'm sure it can get complex, and I'm not trying to get into the ethical, were you enabling him? And I'm not trying to talk about that. But when you're thinking about in a given moment, what is the moral thing to do? Is it moral to help this person shop for groceries? Yes. Is it moral to pay for the groceries? Yes. Is it moral to help him put the groceries away? Sure, right? Yes. But... At no point did I do the handsome thing. You know what I mean? At no point did I say, you know what? I'm for you, buddy. I'm on your side. At no, I was being led along by what was technically right. And at no point was I trying to do what was good for him. Now, again, you can get into that. You can get bogged down. Was that really good? I get that. But at no point was I really thinking about him. I was thinking about myself. We have a lot of this distinction in life where we're doing the technically right thing. So we're placing this, this morally correct or technically correct framework over a situation to making a decision when that's not the right framework for the decision. The decision is what is the good thing or the beautiful thing. For example, when a parent forces a begrudging apology between two siblings... Right? The sibling can do the technically correct thing, and oh, I'm sorry, but it's not, it's not beautiful. Right? The apology is anything but beautiful. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of times Christians do the technically correct thing because we're afraid of what people will think, like we're doing the right thing, but it's not good. I think that there are Christian marriages 
that are hanging on by a thread because it's technically right, but they're not investing in what is good and beautiful for that other person. And so I think it's fair for us to wrestle with the question of how do we tell the difference between technically right, which is a good thing, and a lot of Christians live their whole lives there, but what is the technically right thing and what is the good thing, the actually good thing? I think that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. I have a few things to say about that. When we want to be technically right, it's often for our good. So we can stand back with our arms crossed and say, I'm in the right. I'm right. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. When we want to be actually good, we're thinking about the other. We're thinking about them and what is good for them. Look at what Isaiah says in, in, in Isaiah 58.10. It's a beautiful passage. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will shine, will rise rather, in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. You, you see how he's mapping on to that idea when you spend yourself. Now, it doesn't even have to be big. Even a small light can make a difference in a dark room. Earlier this week, I was at a high school basketball game and the home team lost by a lot of points. The team that I was there cheering for. Lost by a lot. And you know, at the end of the game, the technically right thing is you line up the two teams and you say, good game, high five, you know, shake hands, whatever. Good game, good game, good game. That's the minimum. That's technically right. If you don't do that, that's not even good sportsmanship. But at the end of this game, the home team, who had lost by 30 points, invited the opposing team to the center of the court to pray together. And I, don't, I didn't join them. I think that would have been weird. I kind of wanted to. I wanted to get in there and hear what they were saying. I, I didn't do that. I was, I'm, I'm guessing they were saying things like, you know, thank you, Lord, that none of us are injured and that we were able to play and this was great, you know, all that. Now, number 10, you can barely see him. He's kind of covered here. Number 10 in the white, he had just eaten their lunch. He had shot so many threes that you were like, well, they're just giving him the game. And I just love this image of, this, of, of these rivals with their arms around one another praying. And to me, this is good. They could have been technically right, good game, good game, good game, good game, but they did something beautiful instead. And I think that's the major difference between being right and being good. It's more than just right. The most influential teachings of Jesus were about going beyond what was technically right. Jesus said, hey, everyone loves their friends, all right? You love and pray for and care for your enemies. Jesus said, hey, everyone is compelled by Roman soldiers to walk a mile if they're asked. You walk another mile. You go beyond. Hey, everyone is compelled by law not to kill each other. That's just technically right. You go beyond that. Don't even hate one another. I guarantee you the most influential moments in your life from someone else were when someone else went beyond what was technically enough. When they showed up at your doorstep with a meal and when you didn't have it in you to make food and you hadn't even asked. When they visited you in the hospital even though they lived hours away. When they sent a handwritten letter, even though a text could, with an emoji could have, could have sufficed. This is, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I don't, I don't even know if this is somebody in here. I have no idea. When Crumble Cookie first opened in Woodbury, you know what Crumble Cookie is? Yeah? 
If you oh you don't you should go there. That's really it's really good. Uh, these cookies, man. I don't. They will put you in the hospital. But they're so delicious. Anyway, we were uh, when it first opened up. <clears throat> it was 7:45 a.m. on a school day, and I opened up the door, and there was a box of 12 crumble cookies at the door. I, maybe that was one of you. I have no idea. I have no clue. Was that one of you? I don't know. You're not going to take credit for it at this point anyway. That's all right. And you know what's funny is you totally could. I wouldn't have any idea. I don't know who did it. But somebody completely out of the blue was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to give Patrick and Kareem. It could have been a wrong address. I have no idea. I literally have no idea. But I think about that every once in a while. Somebody, for some reason, was thinking about us and did this wild, random, beautiful thing. Simple, tiny, small, beautiful thing that went above what would normally be. It was memorable. I want to I wrap up by going back to the, the, uh, the boys rescued from the cave, Thai soccer boys. I watched an interview with one of the British divers uh, who had found the boys. It was fascinating. This guy did not want any notoriety from it. Um, and he talks about the moment that they emerged from the water and they saw these boys sitting there on this muddy, this muddy embankment there in the cave. And he's, he doesn't speak Thai. There's one boy who speaks just halting uh, English that he's, he's picked up uh, in school. And they didn't bring anything to offer them. They, they, they didn't have, they, didn't, they were just looking for them. They weren't ready to, to bring anything yet. And they can't take the boys with them yet. And so all he can do is in, in, in this, in, in just try to, in simple English, to try to, he just kept saying things like, believe, believe, you know, trying to get them to understand it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Uh, but in the interview, the British rescuer told the interviewee, we had nothing to give but light. Now, of course, he meant it in that very literal way. They had headlamps on their, hel- uh, on their uh, helmets. Uh, they had nothing. They, they literally just had, had light. But I was really struck by that statement because he didn't mean it in that metaphoric, symbolic way. They had just had flashlights with kids who hadn't seen for a week. But I think that's true for us, right? At the end of the day, we have nothing to offer anybody but light. We, we really don't. If you're trying to convince your friend or neighbor to check Jesus out because of your moral perfection, you will always fail because you're morally imperfect. If you're trying to convince your friend or neighbor to come to Jesus because you've got these incredible, sophisticated, logical arguments, you're going to fail. All we have to offer anybody is light. That's all we have to say, I want to be for you. I'm not going to just do what's technically correct that lets me off the hook and make sure that I get to be with Jesus someday. I want to be for you. I care about you. I'm going to go above and beyond for you.